Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. This is Demetrius Spinrad. And this is Isaac Meyer. And you're listening to Criminal Records Podcast, a podcast about some of the weirdest cases in true crime history. And this is part two of Emma Goldman. When we last left our young anarchist, she was in a bit of a pickle. She had gotten herself accused of, of uh, being part of a conspiracy to do a little bit of assassination. But she's out of jail. She's free. She's out of jail, she's free, she's good to go, uh, despite having been accused without any evidence of being behind the attempted assassination of Henry Clay Frick, and having been convicted of inciting a riot in New York, despite that riot never actually happening. Uh, that's okay, she's feeling good, she's ready to go, she's back out of prison. Um, so from this point forward, you know, last time was about Emma Goldman's kind of origin as an anarchist figure. From this point onward, I am not going to do a blow-by-blow of her life because it just gets way too complicated. We would be here for a while. Uh, Instead, I'm just going to quickly go over where she's at when she gets out of prison. We'll talk a bit about her politics, and we'll talk a bit about a few different points where she runs afoul of the law. So, as a quick reminder, she gets out of prison in 1893, or yes, 1893, for incitement to riot. Uh, and from there, she'll briefly go actually to London for a bit uh, to pick up a side gig. She'll actually uh, become a licensed nurse uh, and then come back to the United States and kind of make a living working as a midwife and a nurse in combination with her lecturing circuit as an anarchist because she is now one of the fe- like the, the faces of American anarchism. Uh, those tours are very popular. Apparently, she's one of the first anarchist speakers to go on a speaking tour of the West Coast. I tried to find anything she'd done in Seattle. I'm not totally sure that she made it uh, all the way up here. I know she made it as far as Portland. So, you know, she definitely made it into the area. I mean, there was definitely some very famous labor agitation happening in Seattle at the time. So she could have stopped by. I mean, I I imagine even if she didn't make it out here and I just couldn't find anything one way or another. um, But I'm not an expert on this period. Her ideas certainly did. So I'm curious. I know that I know that just talking about her being a midwife is just her day job, which is not the thing that most people remember her for. But uh, I also remember this being a period of time where maternal care and care of babies was, uh, let's say, not ideal, uh, especially really showed off class stratification 
Did she do any writing about how what she saw in that job affected uh, some of what was going on pol- with her political philosophy? Uh, quite a bit. And I mean, this is the thing where I just have to point, yeah, I'd have to say up front, um, Emma Goldman wrote so much that unless you are an absolute expert on her kind of on her thinking, I don't think it's really possible to be familiar with all of it. Um, she she had a lot to say. Um <laughs> I've definitely have read some of her stuff about I've read some of her stuff about kind of gender politics. And one of the things she talks about is the structure of childcare being like a way to imprison women, essentially, in relation to men. Um, and, you know, one of her goals, one of the things that makes her kind of controversial among anarchists is her advocacy for kind of social liberation of women to go along with the political liberation promised by anarchism. Um, the idea being that, you know. Uh, actually, I have a quote from an, uh, an interview she gave to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Um, the interviewer is asking her, aren't women free? Free? Woman is the slave of her husband and her children. She should take part in the business world the same as the man. She should be as equal before the world as she is in the reality. She is as capable as he, but when she labors, she gets less wages. Why? Because she wears skirts instead of trousers. Um, And then the follow-up question is, but what is to become of the ideal home life and all that now surrounds the mother, according to a man's idea? Her response, ideal home life indeed. The woman, instead of being the household queen told about in storybooks, is the servant, the mistress, the slave of both husband and children. She loses her own individuality, individuality entirely, even her name she is not allowed to keep. She is the mistress of John Brown or the mistress of Tom Jones. She is that and nothing else. That is the way I think of her. You know what? I am picking up exactly what Emma Goldman is putting down here. Uh, I recall this is also the era of sort of the construction of a certain kind of domestic ideal that uh, wasn't really that historical and uh, wasn't really that possible for a lot of American society, right? But this is this is sort of the era of the invention of what we now think of as the housewife, right? Yes, this is the age of the origin of the cult of true womanhood, as it's sometimes called. Uh, And it's, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about Goldman in relation to that is that on the one hand, it makes her kind of this like magnet of controversy. It is part of what draws people to oppose her, but it also gives her a sort of cross-party appeal. She's one of very few anarchists who draws in large numbers of non-anarchists to her speeches, especially women. And a lot of that is because she appeals also to like what we might call progressive or liberal reformers who maybe are not anarchists, but share some of her views about gender politics. And so she can kind of like appeal to those people and build what we might call some coalition politics, if we want to get a little fancy with our language. Yeah, honestly, a lot of what she's saying is making a lot of sense to me. I'm not really so down on the uh, poorly attempting to assassinate people angle, but uh, a lot of her politics are actually still resonating here. Allegedly. Allegedly, she was involved in that. Allegedly. Actually, we got another assassination to talk about soon, but... Oh, Oh, okay, let's go. Well, before that, so, okay, you're da- you're down with, uh, I have four kind of main points in her worldview. I'm taking a lot of this from Alice Wexler's biography of Emma Goldman, by the way. And Wexler's fourth point about Goldman's politics is the kind of like the, the gender politics she brings to the table. So let's talk about point number one then. Okay, so you're down for Emma Goldman's gender politics. Do you share her fundamental opposition to the state? 
all states. They're all illegitimate, including democracies, because they rely on subordinating individual free will to the majority and delegating your right to make your own decisions to representatives. Uh, well, Emma, I'm not really sure how society is going to function at scale without some civil servants. Yeah, I mean, this is the, like, uh, just to remind everyone, I'm not an anarchist. I think I'm, I like to think I'm a little bit familiar with the theory, but I'm certainly not an expert. Uh, last I checked, Demetria, you're not an anarchist either, but it has been a little while. <laughs> I would say I would say no. I'm uh, I very much enjoy my roads and my social programs. Yeah. So this is very much, I think, Gold, uh, Goldman's kind of Kropotkinite anarchism coming out. It's very idealized. There's this notion, again, that humans are sort of naturally social and don't need elaborate social or political structures. We have this kind of natural desire to work together. I would I would say, yeah, I'll. A lot of the anarchists that I've met are are very idealistic that way, and I would say I'm a little bit less idealistic about human nature than a lot of the folks I've met and uh, debated politics with. I, I definitely I respect it. I don't agree with it, but I do respect it. Um, I also don't necessarily agree with Goldman telling her followers that they shouldn't participate in electoral politics because they give the illusion of choice without reality because the ballot is quote simply a means for the transference of rights of the people to the control of rulers, whenever the people shall have arrived at a knowledge of the true principles governing harmonious social relations, they will put them into practice without the ballot box. I don't know about that. I mean, democracy is not perfect, but, you know. Yeah, that's very convenient to not actually have to do anything in a democracy and simply wait for the revolution that will overthrow the democracy. Uh, that, that does take a lot of the responsibility of maintaining a structure off of your shoulders as, as a citizen. Yeah, I mean, she does have, you know, a positive direction to tell people what to do. She's not an, uh, a ballot organizer, but she is a labor organizer and she's big into direct act, uh, action. So organizing strikes, demonstrations and like alternative uh, anarchist co-ops or anarchist schools. Um, she will say in one of her interviews, direct action against the authority in the shop, direct action against the authority of the law, direct action against the invasive meddlesome authority of our moral code is the logical, consistent method of anarchism. I will say, in fairness, I know a thing or two about how elections were run in this time period, especially local elections. And just like even the things that I don't agree with that she's saying here, I see how someone with her life experience would have come to that conclusion. Having lived through the time period that she lived through in the places that she was living... I see how she would be a little bit suspicious of the electoral system. I think that's fair enough. Yeah, um, I'm always a little bit shaky with the direct action stuff because it's never clear to me how that's supposed to translate into actual long-term systemic change. Uh, it always seems like that gets hand-waved a little bit. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, like you said, there are, I can see how someone could arrive in a logically consistent way at this kind of conclusion. Uh, point number three uh, in Emma Goldman's ideology is her extreme hatred of religion. Uh, she calls Christianity uh, admirably adapted to the training of slaves and just generally seems to enjoy scandalizing people by really going like attacking Christianity as a moral and social institution. OK, you know what? Again, in fairness, knowing where she came from and knowing how Christianity was used against people in the Russian Empire, 
and then moving to America and knowing and knowing these strains of Christianity that were dominant at the time that she is saying these things and what that was used against people to do. I'm there's a point there. Um, I'm not. I'm not saying all religion automatically slavery, but uh, I see where that idea came from to her. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely par- partially she just kind of enjoys fucking with people and she knows that'll get a response out of middle class Americans. Um, but I can see where she is coming from. If you are wondering, because we did talk a bit about her uh, her Jewish origins, is that the phrase uh, last time? <laughs> She doesn't talk as much about Judaism in a lot of her interviews, but she mentions it occasionally from what I can kind of infer. Uh, The ethical tradition of Judaism was still very important for her. She did get kind of a traditional education um, in kind of the Orthodox style that would have familiarized her with that. But she also seems to have felt, and I don't know that I fully, and I I don't know that I disagree, that that ethical tradition was bogged down by an excessive focus on ritual rather than the ideals behind the rituals. Which I don't fully disagree with. I think that can happen in some strands of Judaism. I do also want to, want to point out a lot of those rituals have some uh, questionable gender assumptions going Certainly into them. In the um, Orthodox and, tradition that yeah. she was raised in, that is very true. Uh, especially conservative dad who wanted to be an Orthodox rabbi, I would imagine, was uh, not going with the modern reform significantly different interpretations of the purpose of some of those rituals. Yeah, I think Emma Goldman would have really enjoyed a Reconstructionist synagogue, mostly because they like to argue. I would love to talk to Emma Goldman about periods. I'm just saying, I think she would have had a lot to say. Uh, speaking of which, we ta- we touched a little bit on point four already, which is her views on gender. This is what really, I think, separates her from a lot of other anarchists. Most of this stuff is pretty conventional, in the kind of Kropotkinite wing of anarchism, but her gender politics are way more at the forefront than a lot of the other men who are kind of the faces of anarchism during this period. Um, We've talked about her views on gender equality. We also briefly mentioned her views on free love um, from the same interview that I quoted earlier about uh, gender relations in the household. That interviewer would ask her later on, what do you call love? Her response was, when a man or a woman finds some quality or qualities in another that they admire and has an overweening desire to please that person, even to the sacrificing of personal feeling, when there is that subtle something drawing them together that those who love recognize and feel it in the inmost fiber of their being, then I call it love. Follow-up question, can a person love more than one at the same time? I don't see why not. If they find the same lovable qualities in several persons... What should prevent one loving the same things in all of them? So this is pretty like this is a pretty big departure from the rest of the anarchist movement, which is way more like focused on kind of political and economic exploitation and less so on the social sphere. And especially in terms of talking about gender and free love and all that. Also want to note, as we mentioned last time, Emma Goldman was almost certainly bisexual herself. There's pretty good evidence for that. And would repeatedly get in trouble. She actually got harassed by cops in Portland during her tour there because she said in a speech that there was nothing wrong with being homosexual. And so she was charged for public indecency for saying that, but was eventually released without a trial. Yeah, I mean, I'm picking up a lot of things that uh, I am agreeing with here. And I I am really actually quite 
astonished how modern a lot of a lot of the things she's saying is. We talked about this a little bit in the previous episode about the other anarchist leader who wanted to make her into a good little housewife. It seems like um, the anarchist movement as it exists in this time period is uh, not exactly able to separate some of their biases from the atmosphere in which all of this is taking place in. I would say that's very fair, yeah. And Goldman, I think part of what makes her so notorious is that she is very different from those guys and it, you know, draws in scandal because of that, but also draws in attention outside of the usual anarchist constituencies. You know what else gets her a lot of attention? When she is implicated in the assassination of the American president. Oh boy. Okay. Which one? Which one? Uh, Well, of course we all remember president William McKinley. Uh, We remember him so well that I forgot to look up which number of president he is. I, I'm not probably 20 something, right? Who are, Who cares? Anyway, September 6, 1901, good old Willie McKinley is six months into his second term as president. He's in the great city of Buffalo, New York. Um, Unfortunately, too early for the invention of Buffalo Wings, but right in time for the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo. Uh, And he's a man of the people. He's gotten some death threats from anarchists before, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want too much separation between him and his constituents. He likes to glad hand. And so he's going around, shaking hands, meeting people, working the crowd, when an unemployed Polish-American former factory uh, worker, whose name I'm going to probably mangle a little bit, Leon Salgaz, pulls out a gun and shoots McKinley twice in the chest. McKinley will briefly seem like he's going to recover, but then the wound will turn septic and he will die on September 14th, making him, of course, the third American president to be assassinated after uh, Abraham Lincoln and James Garfield uh, he is actually the reason the Secret Service exists after his assassination. That's when uh, the Congress starts to shift a mandate to protect the president over to the Secret Service. And of course, he's most famous because uh, before he died, he picked a vice president by the name of Mr. Teddy Roosevelt, who would go on to be something of a big deal when he became president. Um, but, you know, Rip McKinley, I guess. They just don't make presidents like czars. They just do not stand up to anarchist assassination attempts in the same way. Yeah, he's decidedly less bomb-proof than Alexander II, which I'll, you know, I'll let you draw your own conclusions about the merits of democracy from that fact. Uh, so the important thing for us, Leon Salgaz is obviously nabbed by the cops. He's interrogated, and he'll tell them, I am an anarchist. I struck at, out at McKinley uh, because I'm an anarchist and I want to engage in this propaganda of the deed, I want to you know, assassinate people to draw attention to the cause. And he says, I was inspired to do this by a speech given by, who do you think? Oh, is, is Emma Goldman going to be in trouble for incitement to assassination here? Exactly. What he will say is that he saw Goldman speak in the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, in May of 1901, she gave a speech called The Modern Phases of Anarchy and that it, quote, set him on fire, after which he resolved to do something heroic for the cause I loved. Okay, so we're oh we're going to get into some really interesting law here because there is there is, you know, the First Amendment, big fan of it, does protect a lot of speech in the United States, however, does not protect all speech incitement to murder is uh, not something that is protected under the First Amendment. And I am very curious to see where the courts are going to draw this line. Yeah, so this is going to be an interesting one because there's not really any evidence that ties Goldman to directly saying, hey, go shoot the president. 
um, looking retrospectively at it, it's pretty clear that Leon Salgas was frankly just obsessed with Emma Goldman, uh, basically had the hots for her and just shot the president to get Senpai to notice him. You know what? Wouldn't be the first of Goldman's boyfriends to shoot somebody. So, like, I don't know, maybe maybe it would have worked. Certainly would have gotten uh, gotten her attention. It did, did get her attention. Uh, so apparently he will actually try to get into the home of some of her friends in Chicago in July under a false name. Uh, basically, like, you know, saying he was really inspired by Goldman to join the movement. Uh, he he like, pulled her aside briefly when she was glad handing after that speech in May to get like a reading list from her, essentially. Like he's trying to get noticed uh, and he did, but not in a great way. Uh, one of Goldman's allies at this point, another Jewish anarchist, Abraham Isaac, was convinced that Solgaz was a spy for the U.S. government uh, and actually put out a warning saying that in the September 1st issue of the publication he edited called Free Society. So, like, Salgaz is not, like, he's trying to get into the movement, and it's quite possible that he shot the president basically to prove that he was a dedicated anarchist and that he wasn't a government spy, which they all thought he was. Oh, that is, I guess that is the eternal problem in, uh, I guess, fringe movements of all types, of that you you do not know who is a genuine comrade and who uh, might have some ulterior motives for being there. So, uh, you know, regardless of motives, uh, people get a little ornery when you try and shoot the president, uh, shockingly enough. Uh, and so after the assassination, there is this mass moment of anti-anarchist hysteria, rounds of arrests, mob violence actually targeting anarchists. Uh, Johann Most, that guy who tried to make Emma Goldman into a housewife, will actually get a year in prison right after this because he made the unfortunate mistake of printing an essay defending the assassination of kings in Europe the day before McKinley was shot. Oops. Uh, I, okay. I am, I'm curious about some of the first amendment, uh, protections on that one. Cause that one seems like a vaguer incitement to violence than, than one normally gets a year in prison for. If you think that's bad, uh, Leon Salgas's trial is fucking insane. It's like a, I mean, he did shoot the president to be clear. But that trial is a fucking mess. So he he does that on September. Uh, let me double check my date six here just to be make sure. You know. His trial is two days long. It takes place September 23rd to 24th. So he has no time to prepare a defense. The defense counsel, who is a public defender, will apologize for defending this person. He will actually get up and say, I'm sorry, I have to do this. Um, That defense counsel brings in an alienist, essentially an early psychiatrist to try and like you know, make some kind of insanity defense, but they don't really try that hard. And Solgas's own family say that they think he's, you know, completely nuts. Um, most of the jurors have obviously made up their mind in, before on, like before anything gets said, say so yeah, it's a two day trial for shooting the president. And then he's immediately convicted and sentenced to be hanged. Like, oh. this is not a great, this is not a moment where the American legal system covers itself in glory. And I think you can see that, and how Emma Goldman gets handled here, too. That's fascinating. Actually, we uh, we covered the attempted assassination of Andrew Jackson um, and that trial. Actually, I kind of wonder if the defense was modeled after that trial, because that was a successful even before the insanity defense was really codified. I'd call that kind of a proto successful insanity defense. Uh, but that is definitely not what happened here. No, um, it's. 
it's pretty bad. I mean, this is an early era of real like anti-left hysteria that's going to continue to build from this point forward when we look at World War One, especially. But you can see it uh, here, too. Uh, and Emma Goldman gets, you know, catches some flack for it, too. Uh, the police in New York begin to suspect immediately that she's behind the assassination. She'll briefly go on the lam, but turn herself over to the cops in Chicago on September 10th. Um, and basically, like, you know, follows her usual playbook. Um, and, you know, is not really in that much legal danger. Um, she's released, uh, on the 23rd, the, or excuse me, the 24th, um, because there's no evidence to continue holding her. Uh, but, you know, in the meantime, is very kind of public in defending Leon Salgaz. She says, uh, in an interview with the New York Times, quote, uh, Leon Salgaz, I am convinced, planned the deed unaided and entirely alone. There is no anarchist ring that would help him. There may be anarchists who would murder, but there are also men in every walk of life who sometimes feel the impulse to kill. I do not know Shirley, but I think Salgaz was one of those downtrodden men who see all the misery which the rich inflict on the poor and resolve to strike a great blow, as they think, for the good of their fellow men. But that is not anarchy. Salgaz may have been inspired by me, but if he was, he took the wrong way of showing it. Um... So, you know, it's kind of an equivocation. She will later, she'll continue to defend him. She'll call him the man with, uh, a man with a beautiful soul of a child and the energy of a giant. So pitiful in his loneliness and yet so sublime in his silence and superiority over his enemies. So I'm starting to notice something here, which is that Ebba Goldman is saying, do not participate in democracy. It's a system that is not representing you. Uh, there is a better option out there after the state collapses and we go back to a more basic state of society. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit confused about how she's sort of skimming over the state will collapse somehow. I'm not saying there should be a violent uprising, but I I don't see any other way the state's just going to spontaneously crumble here. I mean, I do wonder if maybe she's just trying to not get arrested. Um, but she does, you know, she continues to very publicly defend Salgaz, which does draw a lot of heat her way. And actually, like, this does lead to what I'd call what, what I'd call kind of a split uh, between her and the rest of the anarchist movement, because a lot of anarchists, uh, including, like, for example, um, Alex Berkman, her boyfriend who is still in prison for trying to kill Henry Clay Frick. Uh, will disavow Salgaz very publicly. They'll say he's not an anarchist. She won't do that. Um, and it's possible. It's not clear what exactly is going on here. Maybe she feels kind of responsible for what happened and maybe feels that she accidentally encouraged him. But at after this point, she'll actually kind of withdraw from anarchist the anarchist movement for a few years. And when she kind of comes back politically, when she reemerges politically, will be, I, I mean... I would say still like pretty out there on the left, but more focused on what I'd call like liberal progressive causes than kind of outright anarchist ones. Interesting. I, I am curious. I'm sure that somewhere in her writing, she she goes into more detail about this. But I also am wondering if there's a little bit of disillusionment with how the anarchist movement does not actually seem to be handling intersectionality very well. I mean, I certainly, I suspect that's part of it. Um, broadly, what happens after this point, Goldman will kind of withdraw from the like public anarchist work she has been doing. 
spend a lot of time in New York uh, under an assumed name because she can't use her real one to rent places. She'll be denied them. Uh, living with her brother, Moisha slash Morris, also having an affair with one of the friends of Moisha slash Morris, as one does. Um, and basically stay out of politics until 1903. Uh, what leads her back in, in 1903, New York and New Jersey will pass anti-anarchist laws. Uh, and the United States will actually pass a ban on uh, anarchists naturalizing as American citizens. The first such, but not the last in American history. That's why if you become a U.S. citizen, for example, you still get asked if you're a member of the Communist Party. Um, so that's obviously very politically inciting for her. There's also back in Russia where she grew up. This is the year of the Kishinev pogrom, one of the biggest attacks on Jews in Tsarist Russia, and also of anti-government rioting in St. Petersburg. And sort of following that from afar starts to draw her back into politics. But uh, at this point, her focus changes a little bit. It's less kind of, again, public speaking uh, instead, she'll focus on a magazine. She'll start a magazine called Mother Earth that promotes her kind of brand of anarchism. We don't really have room to talk about it here because there's a lot of stuff still to go through. But it's really interesting. I recommend, if you're at all interested uh, in the subject or the period, checking it out. Uh, and starting to work more, again, with uh, what I'd call like prominent liberals, prominent progressives in American politics. Uh, around this time, she'll make common cause with Clarence Darrow one of the uh, great defenders of free speech in American history, uh, trying to fight the deportation of uh, resident aliens, non-American citizens who are anarchists. Um, so I, you know, my read is that she's kind of shifting more towards more, more away from the kind of long-term anarchist vision and more towards the sort of short-term, like what can I do kind of social program style, but still very much like, her stated politics have not changed. Long term, she is like in favor of an anarchist society. Interesting. Okay. So we are a criminal records podcast, and it doesn't sound like she's committing any crimes for a while. Uh, so how does she tangle with the law next? Because it seems like she's backing away from some of the inflammatory rhetoric. So the next time she'll run afoul of the law, it'll be a little while down the down the road, 13 years later in 1914. Um, and by this point, she's really transitioned to be, into being what I would call like a political celebrity. Uh, by 1908, she is touring again from then until 1917. She will be on speaking tours at least half of her uh, half of the time every year. Um, and drawing in a crowd of a few hundred to a few thousand for every lecture averaging three to five lectures a week per like throughout the course of the overall year. Uh, in 1910, she visits 37 cities in 25 states with 120 lectures to a total of 40,000 people. By 1915, 321 lectures in a year to between 50 and 75,000 people. That is um, an exhausting schedule. Oh, my God. She is keeping busy. And I mean, people are excited to see her. That's part of it. Like, obviously, she's controversial. You know, maybe this woman was behind the assassination of the president. That does, you know, that pulls people in. Uh, but she's also, you know, everyone who sees her talks about her being an incredible speaker. Um, I found a description of one of her speeches to the Chicago Press Club uh, in November 1914. This is by the reporter Margaret Anderson. Picture a large club dining room filled with about 500 hard-faced men. Imagine their cynical indifference as she begins to speak amid all the clattering of dishes and the rushing of waitresses. 
then imagine the stillness that gradually descends upon them as she poured out her magnificent denouncement. Her subject was the relationship of anarchism to literature, and she talked to those men about making their lives and work free and true and beautiful in a way that would pull the heart out of anything but a veteran newspaper man. You are mental prostitutes, she hurled at them. You sell yourselves and your work to your editors or your publishers. There is no such thing as a free man among you. You say what you're told to say, whether it's the truth or not. You must not have an opinion of your own. You dare not have any ideas. You'd die of indigestion if you had. It is men like you who are responsible for the public crimes, such as the hanging of my five anarchist comrades in this city 27 years ago. That's the, the, Haymarket, uh, the Haymarket riots in their aftermath. She berated them for an hour. She told them what her anarchism means, how it can contribute to the living of a rich life. You call it a dream, gentlemen, Will I plead guilty. But when we can't dream any longer, we die. That's what's the matter with you. You've lost your dreams. She sat down under an applause that burst like bullets. Fascinating. Okay, so she is... Uh, at the same time that there's this huge panic about anarchism going on in the press, which I'm sure is selling a lot of newspapers, newspaper clubs, uh, press clubs are actually inviting her to give speeches as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. She's like, she's a celebrity. She's kind of famous. But then she falls afoul of something, actually a subject that we've talked about before on this podcast uh, and something that we probably should do more on at some point. Demetria. Would you like to explain to our listeners what the Comstock laws are? Oh, boy. Okay. Um, that was actually, I would say, one of the first scripts I wrote for this podcast, and I was uh, not a very good script writer and got a little in over my head. Um, but there's actually a surprisingly uh, harsh, I would say, legal code about what you can and cannot send by mail. So even if it is legal to say something um, or even if it is legal to write something, it may not necessarily be legal to distribute it by mail in the United States. And there's a level on which that makes sense. Um, you know, like obviously sending explosives through the post. There are thing, there's a lot of substances that are legal to own, but not legal to send in the mail for safety reasons. Uh, but the Comstock laws uh, were the era when uh, some of these laws were applied to things like... Uh, like pamphlets about how to safely use birth control, uh, pamphlets about uh, how free love, a lot of a lot of the conversation about free love. Emma Goldman was definitely not the only person involved in that conversation. And a lot of people got uh, nabbed on charges in this era by for distributing things that were perfectly legal to say, but not perfectly legal to post. You know who one of those people was? Future episode subject, Margaret Sanger. I think we can just call that shot right now. Oh, yeah. we Okay, we should do Margaret Sanger. I, okay, I keep wanting to do abortion episodes and then getting a little bit too upset um, doing the research, uh, especially in the current political climate, but I really should get on that. That's fair, I think. But, I mean, Sanger is, very, you know, worth noting here, obviously a very prominent figure in the spread of kind of uh, birth control discussions in the U.S., Actually, the ones who the one who coins the phrase birth control uh, in the English language. And Goldman is a huge fan of of uh, Margaret Sanger's um, for a while. They'll be pretty politically close. Eventually, they'll drift apart because Sanger will, as she goes on, become more politically conservative in kind of her non like non birth control related views. 
sang her for all of the uh, for all of the wonderful things that she did do for the country uh, was uh, a little racist, more than a little racist, I'd say. Uh, she did not really fit in that well with a lot of uh, left wing ideology. Yeah, and Goldman is not the kind of person who lets that sort of thing lie. So uh, before long, things blow up between them. But for a time, they are pretty kind of close, uh, particularly once Sanger and her husband are both arrested under the Comstock laws, uh, I believe in 1914, August 1914, uh, for distributing pamphlets through the U.S. mail, as well as giving lectures talking about birth control and abortion because some states, including their home state of New York, also pass laws around speech advocating for immoral acts, like birth control, as it was called at the time. Uh, and so once that happens, Goldman will start promoting Sanger as well, start promoting Sanger's magazine, The Woman Rebel, at her rallies, uh, and openly like declare her support for Sanger, and also take some of her rallies to talk not about anarchism, but this is how a condom works. This is how other forms of birth control work. Uh, basically giving sex ed classes in the middle of her politics lectures. Wow, and okay, so a, a lecture from Emma Goldman could be like some yelling about anarchy and then like switch to the condom demonstration. Like you could I'm, really just get it all in one go. I, I believe she would usually say in advance what the focus was going to be. I imagine there was some jumping around, but you know. A great speaker, so I I imagine people were entertained no matter what. Uh, and it's worth noting that generally, that this is this is true of a lot of leftist movements. The IWW, for example, also gets into talking about birth control. So do socialists during this period. So she's not the only one who's doing this, but she's one of the most prominent, which is probably why on February 11th, 1916, she is arrested in New York State for giving a lecture on birth control despite the fact that she'd already done that, actually, uh, in New York without any issue. Uh, as far as I could find, the only previous time she'd gotten dinged for this was getting a fine in Portland for, quote, circulating literature of an illegal character. Uh, but she actually got that overturned on appeal. But this time, she is charged with violating what was then Section 1142 of the New York Penal Code, which, quote, makes it a misdemeanor for a person to sell, give away, or advertise, or offer for sale any instrument or article, drug or medicine for the prevention of conception or to give information orally stating when, where or how such an instrument, article or medicine can be purchased or obtained. Um, and so, yeah, Goldman gets busted under this. Sanger will as well, actually, and end up losing a Supreme Court case in New York over it. Uh, one of the kind of landmark cases in the history of birth control law in the U.S., for us, what matters, Goldman gets tried in New York on April 20th, 1916. Apparently 500 people try to get into the courtroom. There's only space for 200. She gives an impassioned speech basically saying, fuck you, yeah, I did it, but birth control is necessary, and is immediately convicted. The charge is a misdemeanor charge, so it's either a $150 fine or 15 days in the workhouse. She picks the workhouse, you know, 15 days in, uh, released on May 4th, uh, but... Just, just makes her more of a celebrity. Like, Rose Pastor Stokes, who was one of the big liberal figures of the birth control movement, not an anarchist, right, kind of a center-leftist, will set up a rat like a free Emma Goldman rally and be there to, like, meet her with thousands of followers when she's released from prison. It just makes her more of this kind of, like, you know, cross-movement figure who has this following outside of anarchist circles. Uh, but then comes her third legal issue... 
you're smiling in a way that makes me think that this one's going to be a real doozy. And uh, oh, yeah, the fact a, that you this is a humdinger. The fact that you didn't let me uh, interject that much talking about uh, birth control law uh, makes me think we are saving up for something that is uh, really going to be. Oh something. no! Please, please jump in on that because now we're going to talk about treason. <gasps> oh, okay. Uh, well, no, I, <laughs> sedition. Technically. Okay. Well, I I just wanted to say. At this time, uh, we are pre-pill birth control here. So what she is being what she is being dinged for here uh, really is just uh, barrier birth controls, right? Like the that early is my diaphragm, understanding, yes. the condom. So that is, uh, yeah, pre pre our current debate over birth control and what conception is. It's sh- it's purely just you are not allowed to jizz in someone and not get them pregnant. Yeah, and this is why, you know, because assholes like this used to make it illegal to do the stuff that's now done in high school health classes, this is why they should not be allowed to have any say over these things. Anyway, let's talk about treason. All right, let's do it. So, we all remember, of course, that in November 1916, the new American president, Woodrow Wilson, will be reelected primarily because he promised to keep us out of war. That was his campaign slogan, keep us out of war. And, of course, we all remember what happens next, which is that in April 1917, Woodrow Wilson does not keep us out of war. And, in fact, the U.S. enters World War I. Uh, and this is a big moment in American history. It's kind of the emergence of America as a major world power. More importantly for us, uh, Wilson realizes that his initial plan to fill out the U.S. Army with volunteers is not going to work. Only 73,000 people volunteer in the first month and a half of the war. And Wilson wants to bump up the army tenfold from a hundred thousand people to a million, so that's just not going to work. Yeah, it turns out it turns out not a lot of Americans were interested in getting involved in this European spat. Yeah, it turns out. Uh, and so, uh, in May of 1917, Wilson uh, arranges for Congress to pass a selective service law to fill out the armed forces by conscription. Uh, he also puts a lot of money into trying to propagandize for the war effort with people like George Creel, an investigative journalist who is charged with leading the Committee on Public Information, basically a mass propaganda effort to support the war. Uh, but there's some uh, some sticks with these carrots, too. In June 1917, Congress passes and Wilson signs the Espionage Act. So... The Espionage Act will target anyone who, and I'm going to quote the text of the original law, quote, when the United States is at war, shall willfully make or convey false reports or false statements with intent to interfere with the operation or success of the military or naval forces of the United States, or to promote the success of its enemies, and whoever, when the United States is at war, shall willfully cause or attempt to cause insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, refusal of duty in the military or naval forces of the United States, or shall willfully obstruct the recruiting or enlistment service of the United States, to the injury of the service or of the United States. Uh-oh, this is giving a lot of power over people who may have some reasonable objections to the recruitment of a lot of young American men going oh, off it, to fight. If you like that, you're going to love this. Because in May of 1918, Congress amends this, what is called the Sedition Law of 1918, adding a whole new section. This part targets, quote, uh, anyone whoever, when the United States is at war, shall willfully make or convey false reports or false statements, blah, 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 
or shall willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States, or the Constitution of the United States, or the military or naval forces of the United States, or shall willfully display the flag of any foreign enemy, or shall willfully urge, incite, or advocate any curtailment of production, or advocate, teach, defend, or suggest the doing of any of the acts or things in this section, enumerated, and whoever shall by word or act support or favor the cause of any country with which the United States is at war, or by word or act oppose the cause of the United States therein. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. You can't even wave a German flag, or you are subject to 20 years in prison or a $10,000 fine. That's a little over a quarter million dollars in, uh, adjusted for inflation today. Yeah, thinking back to what I know in this period, there's quite a large and not fully assimilated group of German immigrants in the country, but I have the feeling that is not what this law is going after here. Uh, it's, I mean, it's used to go after a lot of people. Uh, the sedition laws are eventually repealed in 1920 because they are found to go a little bit too far, shockingly. Uh, just just a smidge into First Amendment territory there. Uh, yeah, just a just a little skosh. Uh, but the Espionage Act is found constitutional by the Supreme Court in 1919. It technically is still on the books, though it has been amended substantially uh, in later years. I think the Rosenbergs were executed under the Espionage Act. Uh, I believe there was talk or there currently are some indictments against Donald Trump related to the Espionage Act. It's still... It's still around, so that, you know that's that's a that's a thing. Um, but that's a law that exists in World War One. This is also a time of a real upwelling of what we would call nationalistic sentiment, anti-immigrant xenophobia, just generally people being racist as fuck. Um, there's a lot of accusation that the war effort is being undermined by foreign-born agitators, particularly. We all know who. We all know who's really behind it. Some sort of international conspiracy. What group of foreign-born people who moved en masse to the United States, most of them from a country that is doing something uh, quite fascinating in 1917? Getting a little, getting a little left-pilled, getting a little commie-pilled there. Oh, yeah. Oh, what group of people known for associating with Bolsheviks in the in the uh, 1910s might and then uh, having quite a falling out, I would say. You know who knows? You know who can give us those answers? Henry Ford. <laughs> oh, Henry Ford, a notable race scientist, Henry yes, Ford. Yes, noticeable guy who would later pal around with Hitler. Don't buy Fords. I hold a grudge. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, very, like... Sometimes open, mostly very latent anti-Jewish sentiment ramped up in all of this, but also just general hatred of anyone who's not a wasp, essentially. Um, this is, it's just kind of the zeitgeist of the moment. In 1916, there's a very influential book called The Passing of the Great Race that does numbers in the U.S. and basically is an argument that Nordic people are superior. It's basically like Nazi eugenic science that does huge numbers in the U.S., uh, it's very influential on the passing of the Immigration Act of 1924, which is the one that bars all Asians from coming to the U.S., heavily restricts European immigration from anywhere other than, like, WASP countries. That's why all those Jews who tried to flee to America got turned back around and sent to death camps. So, really, just a cool moment in American politics. Really cool and normal. 
Yeah, this was uh, back when uh, the boundaries of whiteness were quite tighter than they are today. I think that's a good, a very good academic frame uh, framing of it. Less academic is when Emma Goldman's offices get raided by federal officers in June of 1917. Uh, by the way, they don't have a warrant, actually, or they don't show it when she asks for it, at least. And she is arrested uh, before being charged uh, 10 days. She's held for 10 days, which actually you can't do, but they just do it. Uh, and then charged with violating the Espionage Act and released on $25,000 worth of bail. Um, I'm not sure how she got that money, but... Honestly, impressive. Uh, so they are put on trial, Berkman and Goldman, because Berkman is now out of prison by now. He's gotten out of his 20-year prison sentence, just to go back. Um, they are charged with misusing funds donated to their anti-war campaign, which is called the No Conscription League. They're charged with accepting German money in violation of the Espionage Act, which is just a charge, from what I can tell, that the government threw at anyone who is an anti-war activist without evidence. Uh, they're charged with advocating anti-government violence and charged with conspiring to prevent draft registration, which is an Espionage Act violation. Um, the trial itself, again, I would say is kind of a mess. It's basically them being put on trial for their political views. Uh, a lot of it is Goldman getting grilled basically on, like, do you support anti-government violence? Um, her response, by the way, is, quote, uh, I don't, or she says, I don't, but, quote, to simply condemn the man who has committed an act of political violence to save my own skin would be just as unpardonable as it would be on the part of a physician who is called upon to diagnose a case to condemn the patient because the patient has tuberculosis or cancer or any other disease. Uh, Alex Berkman's a little more succinct. He says, we all believe in violence and we all disbelieve in violence. It depends on the circumstances. Um... This trial is probably, I would say, the most fam most famous because at the end, Goldman gives a two-hour-long speech uh, summing up her defense. It is substantial, but I would like to quote from at least two different parts of it, if you'll allow me. Uh, the first, quote, An act of political violence at the bottom is the culminating result of organized violence on top. It is the result of violence which expresses itself in war, which expresses itself in capital punishment, which expresses itself in courts, which expresses itself in prison, which expresses itself in kicking and housing people for uh, the only crime they are guilty of, having been born poor. Um, So that's, you know, her kind of summing up the accusation that she is engaged in political violence by saying the government is really the violent uh, party here. I also really like, there's a moment in the speech that's very famous when she talks about American patriotism, and this is another area where I find myself very strongly agreeing with Emma Goldman. Who is the real patriot, or rather, what is the kind of patriotism we represent? The kind of patriotism we represent is the kind of patriotism which loves America with open eyes. Our relation towards America is the same as the relation of a man who loves a woman, who is enchanted by her beauty and yet cannot be blind to her defects. And so I wish to state here, in my own behalf and in behalf of hundreds of thousands whom you decry and state to be anti-patriotic, that we love America. We love her beauty, we love her riches, we love her mountains and her forests, and above all we love the people who have produced her wealth and riches, who have created all her beauty. We love the dreamers and the philosophers and the thinkers who are giving America liberty. But that must not make us blind to the social faults of America. That cannot make us deaf to the discords of America that cannot compel us to be inarticulate to the terrible wrongs committed in the name of patriotism 
and the name of country. We simply insist, regardless of all protests to the contrary, that this is not a war for democracy. If it were a war for the purpose of making democracy safe for the world, we would say that democracy must first be safe for America before it can be safe for the world. All right. Once again, I am picking up what Emma Goldman is putting down here. I would agree with that. Yeah, it's a pretty it, I would say it is a solid speech uh, and yet not terribly convincing. On Monday, July 9th, the jury goes into deliberation. Deliberation takes 39 minutes uh, and then they are found guilty uh, from what I can tell on every charge. Uh, Judge Julius Mayer gives them the maximum sentence sentence uh, available based on the charges. Two years in prison, $10,000 fine each. Again, that's about 236000 today. And because, according to the government, they are not American citizens, both Berkman and Goldman, possible deportation at the end of the sentence. Oh, boy. Okay. That's going to be pretty rough probably for them because they are being deported to a country that is uh, going through some changes. Yeah, so this is where things get a little legally spicy. Um, Alex Berkman never bothered to naturalize as an American citizen, so it's pretty open and shut legally for him. Goldman will claim, remember back in episode one, we talked about her shitty marriage to a guy whose name I even forgot to put in the notes because he's such a non-entity. He was the, the creepy weirdo who threatened to kill himself when she broke up with him. She'll say, he was an American citizen, I married him, so I get marriage citizenship. At this point, the laws in the U.S. around that are pretty hazy. We don't start clarifying those until the mid-20th century when it's a way to keep out the undesirables. Uh, and so the government contends when they got divorced, she also gave up like any claim to the process of naturalization, which she didn't complete formally, and so she's not a citizen. Okay, so she's basically been bunged in prison for two years on the uh, we don't like the way you talk charges. And Pretty then much. she gets out and then then what what's going to happen to her? So she is released on September 27th, 1919, um, getting ready to have to fight her deportation at possibly the worst possible moment because, and here's another future episode, she's getting out right in time for what we call the first Red Scare. Uh, most of us, I think, when we say the uh, words Red Scare, we think of the McCarthy period, which we've covered before on this podcast. That's the second Red Scare. The first one is in 1919, this massive wave of anti-leftist conspiracy uh, talk led by the Attorney General of the United States, uh, A. Mitchell Palmer, who is convinced that there is this leftist plan um, to take over the country, that May Day riots, which happen in 1919, are a Bolshevik conspiracy. Actually, they're instigated by right-wing politicians and their followers attacking socialist demonstrators, uh, that race riots happening in 12 cities in the summer of 1919 are the fault of communist agitators and not the fact that black people don't like being treated like they're not human. Um, that a strike by Boston cops in September uh, is not a labor dispute, but just a communist infiltration of the police uh, police union. Uh, you know, having a real normal one, I would say. A. Mitchell Palmer yeah. is right now. Uh, and so he turns to a series of plans to raid leftist po political groups and stop the revolution uh, led by his protege and probably also a future subject, though unfortunately he never did any prison time that I'm aware of. Uh, at this point, he is the head of the Radical Division, in, uh, charged with hunting radicals of the uh, Bureau of Investigation, what will become the FBI. 
Mr. J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, boy. Okay, Hoover... Hoover was so good at getting himself worked up over things that he had to excise from the country. Yes, future Martin Luther King is a communist, J. Edgar Hoover. Um, oh, we should just do an episode on Martin Luther King. That would be that would be fun. I'm sure we'd get some real normal comments on that. <laughs> anyway. Oh man, especially because yeah, you you definitely you definitely teach your students um some some of that history that I would say gets uh whitewashed out of a lot of textbooks. I so. do my best to be a little more honest about what uh what what Martin Luther King actually believed. Uh anyway, this whole atmosphere is not great uh and leads to moments like this. This is an actual headline from the United Press on January third, nineteen twenty. Revolution is prevented. Radical elements were on the verge of fusion intending to elect Bolshevist candidates next president and set up Soviet government, headquarters maintained in Moscow. 4,500 radicals, both men and women, most of them members of the communist and communist labor parties, were arrested last night and early today in a nationwide roundup by federal authorities. The raids, according to the Department of Justice, averted a move to establish a Soviet government in the United States. Wait a second here. The argument that he's going with is these tricky communists who were secretly hiding everywhere. What they were going to do is use legitimate democracy to enact the will of the yes, people. Yes, with the help of anarchists, who you might know if you have any familiarity with Russian history, the Bolsheviks shot all the anarchists when they took over. They don't agree on much except they don't like capitalism. Uh, so anyway, Emma Goldman is being followed by police from the moment she's released from prison. Uh, despite that, she still goes on a speaking tour in November 1919, well under the threat of deportation. Her deportation hearing is on October 27th. She'll give this whole defense. I'm an American citizen. I deserve these protections. Um, and basically give a defiant speech, uh, accusing the government of putting her on trial for the crime of having opinions. Uh, I have a link to it in here, but I don't think I don't think we need to get into it. We have a plenty to talk about already. I mean, yeah, she's she is correct yes. on that one. Uh, that is exactly what they but did. But shockingly, she will not win. Uh, she is deported from the United States alongside Alex Berkman and 247 other people as a part of the Palmer raids on Sunday, December 21st, 1919. They are loaded into a ship, the SS Buford, uh, from Ellis Island, where they had been locked up and shipped off to Russia. I do want to note that just a few weeks before this, on December 2nd, Henry Clay Frick finally died and presumably went to the hell that he desperately deserves, uh, and that Alex Berkman, when he was asked about this by a reporter who was asked for comment, uh, did say that uh, Frick had been, quote, deported by God, and that is a very solid burn. <laughs> I really wanted to note it. I gotta say, though, uh, Emma Goldman, not not a big religion fan. I'm not sure if uh, wishing her enemies to hell was her style. That's, that is probably fair. Uh, so from this point on, uh, Goldman will only briefly come back to the United States many years later. She'll first live in the Soviet Union for a while in the aftermath of the revolution. But uh, it would turn out, uh, you know, this Lenin guy, not super interested in human rights. Uh, and so she would leave the country on December 1st, 1921. Uh, she'd basically sneak out claiming she's going to attend an anarchist conference and then just never come back and write a really fascinating text called My Disillusionment in Russia, where she'll talk about why she left. Uh, and it's pretty scathing in her critique of uh, of Leninism. 
I mean, yeah, knowing knowing what Emma Goldman was uh, really focused on as some of the weaknesses within the anarchist movement, and knowing how the a lot of the uh, the communist regime ends up continuing to enshrine some really iffy uh, things about gender and sexuality and the, the, the family and things like that. I would imagine that she would not have fit in very well there. Yeah, I'd say she called that one pretty well. Uh, eventually, she'll go to Berlin, then leave there for England, and then end up leading, uh, living, of course, in the great progressive haven that is Canada, uh, mostly in Toronto. Um, and will live there for most of the rest of her life. In 1934, she'll briefly be allowed back into the U.S. as part of a press tour for her autobiography, which she'll write during this time, but she'll mostly move between Europe and Canada while lecturing. Um, And I found a bunch of great coverage of her lectures. We don't have time, of course, for all of them, but I wanted to note one at Hygieia Hall in Toronto in January of 1934, Uh, That is about the rise of the Nazi party in Germany one year after their takeover. Uh, The article covering it and quoting Goldman, I'll have her say, quote, they, the Nazi leadership, are all either mental defectives, sexual perverts, or vicious criminal types. Hitler began his life as a perfectly good house painter, the uh, the famous anarchist stated. The world might have had some use for him if he had stuck to house painting. Uh, She will then pretty openly call for someone to assassinate Hitler. Uh, So, you know... That's pretty cool. You know what? I I feel like maybe I've been too down on assassination in this episode. Emma, I completely agree with you. You know, on I, I, I want to, you know, just I recall the words of my my, uh, you know, my stepfather, a very wise man who says that sometimes sometimes in life you have to rise above your principles. And I think this is a good uh, a good <laughs> example of that. Uh, after the start of the Spanish Civil War, she'll pretty openly rally support for the Republican cause and just be generally like a lot of her later career is focused on advocating against fasc- uh, fascism and, you know, called that one pretty well. Um, so she will suffer a stroke, though, eventually in February of 1940. Uh, after a brief recovery, she'll have a second one in May and she'll die shortly thereafter, which brings us to the end of Goldman's career. She does eventually get permission to come back to the U.S. Her body is given permission by the Immigration and Naturalization Service to come back to America so that she could be uh, buried, per her request, in the Forest Home Cemetery in Illinois, right next to the burial plots for the people executed in the Haymarket Affair, which is, of course, what inspired her to anarchism. Uh, And there's a quote on her tombstone, which I do really like. Liberty will not descend to a people. A people must raise themselves to liberty. Um, and that is the story of Emma Goldman. Wow. Really, really interesting figure in history. Really interesting. I feel like, um, often sometimes when, when we are teaching history, uh, and we are teaching larger social movements, we tend to present, uh, present history as, oh, everyone in this time believed this or something. Um, and we don't, we don't tend to talk about, some of the dissidents and some of the ways that people throughout history had some pretty some ideas that are still pretty modern today. And I think this is a good example of uh, even 100 years ago, uh, Emma Goldman had some ideas that still seem perfectly fresh today, had some weird ones, too, but some feel really, really fresh. And I think I mean, that's what's really interesting to me about Goldman is that you can read her so many different ways. I really I loved a piece I found. Um, by Oz Frankel talking about the legacy of Goldman, basically saying that after her death, her legacy has gone through all these different reinterpretations, particularly in the 60s. She becomes like a 
a kind of foundational theory of second wave feminism and third wave feminism. Uh, and so he says, quote, Goldman may be presented as a fighter for free speech, a communitarian, a libertarian, an anti-communist, an extreme individualist, a precursor of modern feminism, a true subversive, a harmless visionary expelled for voicing innocent ideas, a suffering victim, a cheerful life-affirming woman, or an amusing sharp-tongued Jewish grandmother. There is the tough political Goldman and the nurturing gentle spirit Emma. Um, which I do think is really true. Like my exposure to Goldman uh is very much comes through my experience with what like more liberal Judaism, where despite the fact that she mostly disavows Judaism in her lifetime, these days she is like the cool aunt of all left-wing Jews. Like she has this kind of popularity among the kind of more left-wing Jewish communities, including like more religious left-wing Jewish communities. But then if you go into more of the anarchist circles, that's not really emphasized at all. It's more of the kind of like hyper-individualism, the kind of inheritance of the Kropotkinite ideal. Um, there are so many different ways you can look at Goldman uh, kind of based on the ways in which she's been reinterpreted as uh, as a figure kind of in the years after her death. Interesting. Yeah, I... I uh, I know that we tend to joke about how often leftist movements splinter, um, but I feel like this is a good example of why some of those splinters are necessary and why uh, why Goldman was really pushing back against uh, quite a few different movements. Really, um, the the anarchist movement was clearly something that wanted her to be something that she was not willing to be. Um, and uh, obviously the communist movement, definitely not a place where she would fit in uh, particularly well. And it's one of the things I really like, as I did this research, came to respect about her. She is uncompromising. She is an anarchist her whole life and stands by it. But she is capable of reaching across political divides and like talking to people, even in a very abrasive way, but still a way that like shows respect and serious engagement and is able to like make allies by doing that. Um, mm -hmm. and that, you know, just to kind of call it as I see it is not something I see every left-wing person out there being terribly good at doing, but if you actually want to accomplish stuff, it seems pretty important. And it's like, so I don't think I would have agreed with Emma Goldman. I think she, on everything, I think she would have yelled at me quite a bit, <laughs> but I feel like we could have found some things we'd be willing to work on together. And that is pretty important for like making the world a better place. Yeah, I would say um, a, a lot of my life, I would say, is is shaped by ideas that Emma Goldman advanced in her time. Um, a lot of my friends' lives is shaped by ideas that Emma Goldman advanced in her time. Um, I, yeah, I feel like we could have had some really great arguments in college. I would not have agreed with her on everything. Um, but wow, she really was ahead of her time in a lot of things. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, the other thing that's worth remembering here is, you know, if you're an American, the flaws of the American justice system, I I agree very strongly with Goldman's views on American patriotism as she laid them out. Um, I'm fond of this country, but we have a lot of problems. And the ways in which people like Goldman were handled during a period of political hysteria are a great example of why it is important not to give in to that kind of hysteria and actually, like, not just go with this very kind of emotive, like oh, you know, I'm scared the commies are going to take over, so I'll do anything to stop that and just ignore the evidence. Like, 
the dangers of that, I think, are substantial. And what happens to her is a great example of why they are substantial. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would say that she's a combination of um, things that maybe were kind of iffy uh from a legal perspective, like things that may maybe one might argue she really should not have been legally punished for at all. And uh, yeah, things that she started out doing perfectly legally and then the law changed over her uh, specifically to suppress people like her. Yeah, I think it's really it is worth noting that every single instance where she ran afoul of the law, either there was no evidence that she did anything illegal or those laws were stupid. And, you know, I think today the consensus would be at least unless you're like, I'm, I was completely like a lunatic, like proto fascist, um, that those laws were wrong morally. So, you know, mm-hmm. definitely on the right side of history. Yeah. So we get to talk, talk about her on this podcast because of her criminal convictions. And yet I would say we are, uh, she, she deserves to be, remembered as a lot more than a criminal uh the criminalization happened to stop her from saying some things that uh i would say mostly very still worth talking about yes and it gives us opportunities to continue dunking on the comstock laws and on j edgar (laughs) hoover which i think uh you know there's a lot to work with there oh boy i should do like the lavender scare sometime too j edgar hoover was just fantastic at a good scare he he loved to be scared you know a very scared man um and admittedly if my face looked like his i'd be nervous too uh so if you (laughs) want to tell us how much or if our listeners want to tell us how much they hate j edgar hoover where can they find us you can find us on facingbackward.com uh you can also support the network and uh, find out more about what we're working on see some of our projects at patreon.com slash facing backward we even have a special somewhat secret podcast for patreon backers where we yell about movies it's great fun <laughs> oh you want to hear us really rip into napoleon I, I mean i had a great time i had more fun doing that than i did watching the movie <laughs> that's patreon.com slash facing backward if you want to check that out and special shout out to folks who signed up with the shout out tier you are Ian leonard stephen elkins martin Oliveira, clark canning ian kellett matt haynes jackie frostocker monkey sack alayla mcculloch Kieran Murphy, Peter Wales, Robert Prine, William, Arno, Jonas Brandis, Nicholas Kroll, Jerry Spinrad, Jared Stevens, Jeffrey Dwork, Stefan Hrushka, Joshua Kane, Robbie and Kat, Jacob Key, Aaron Finkbeiner, an anonymous Anna's Hummingbird, Mark Sai, Gil, Leslie Ikuda, Trash Taste Enjoyer, John, Christopher, Harrison Rees, Inoue Enrio's Ghostbusters, NihongoKaizen.com, Shimao Toshio's History of Japanesia podcast, A House is a Perfectly Cromulent Mascot, The Fish I Catch are road scholars compared to Samuel Leto, who I'm sure Emma Goldman would have agreed was a schmuck, and Everything Changed When the Fire Nation Attacked. Until next time, folks, try not to get implicated in the assassination of William McKinley. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 oh.
hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss and if your identity is stolen your dedicated u.s-based restoration specialist will work to fix it let lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for save 25 off your first year on lifelock ultimate plus at lifelock.com aware terms apply